All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. We are here discussing a podcast that, in a sense, we we recorded earlier. We recorded a portion of it before. So we had a author, John Siebling, uh, with us. He co-wrote a book with, uh, with Wayne Francis called God and Race. And we, we had the opportunity to interview him. And what we wanted to do was to give you sections of that interview along with dialogue from us about how we're thinking about the, the same conversation at Mission. And so we want you to hear, hear from him, hear his thoughts, and also hear some of ours at the same time. So we're gonna, you're going to hear us uh, discussing amongst ourselves. I'm here with John Simon from Mission, Mike Almaroth. And we are going to uh, talk about it and then cut over so you can hear him speak on some of these issues as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us, and good to have you here on the Odd Church Podcast. Yeah, well, it's been a while, but Long I think while. we've got to start out with uh, our favorite segment of the show. Right. Which is, What's in the Duck? <laughs> Or uh, as they say in uh, Eastern Europe, what's the squalor with the mallard? That's right. Oh, yeah. We bought you a present, Mike, uh, John and I, from oh, wow. a thrift store. Not, no, in the past. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I was like, don't, don't get too excited. Like, it's, not, it's not even my birthday. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and when we were doing that, we saw a very large um, duck that could be opened. Mm. And we were very excited until we realized there was a large piece of the tail missing. Remember yeah. this? Mm-hmm. And so... Oh, we yeah. almost had an opportunity to have the larger scale what's in the duck, but we don't. Hmm. Yeah, what the duck. Well, yeah. this one fortunately fits on our table and it actually works as part of the uh, the decoration of the environment. So mm-hmm. yeah, you I don't think trust, that's right. You don't trust that ours would have. <laughs> yeah, he's I like, I, I'm, I'm I just not sure if it was if we need like a like a foot tall duck on the table. That was six inches maybe. It had some tall. girth to it. Yeah, it was a length har- was, it was around a hardy duck. Oh, length. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, now I have to think of a clue because I forgot to do that before we started. Let's see. Hmm. Um, what's in the duck? I don't know. It, I'm not sure. It candy has Hold feathers <laughs> but cannot fly. Okay. You a pillow. Oh, those really cool <laughs> earrings from the '80s. You dreamcatcher. You have it often, and so do I. Definitely a dream catcher. Okay. I have dreams all the time. You have it often, so do I. I think it's a pillow or a dream catcher. Mm, a night angel. <laughs> <laughs> all great guesses. We're going to go ahead it's and... it's like chicken breast or something. We're going to go <laughs> Just a giant chicken breast inside of, inside of the duck. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. Everybody can make their guesses uh, okay. and hang out till the end to see what it is. And don't forget to make your guess at home. Mm. <laughs> and mm. if you get it right, what do you win, John? Uh, you win uh, whatever it is. Yeah. We'll oh, s- you can have it. We'll, <laughs> save, what, <laughs> so we'll save what's in the duck yeah. and we'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. That, that oh, would be man. great, actually, considering what it is. Oh, good. Okay. Um, well, right. It's definitely okay. a night angel. Yeah. Well, that being said, let's... <laughs> Get into the. Uh, let's get into the context. We'll start off with a question that I asked to John about the gospel and how that specifically applies mm. um, when we talk about things like God and race. So here it is. These last couple of years, we've seen a lot of narratives from all different sides of what the thing is that needs to be done, and oftentimes not in church circles. But my the big question I think for for us as Christians, and and I want to give you an opportunity to give some light to this, but. 
what's unique about the gospel that offers us a different path and, and how does that approach this issue differently than the way everybody else might? What's the uniqueness of the gospel in addressing problems of race? I would say that when you become a Christian, a believer, you automatically become a citizen of a greater kingdom. And we have become in the United States, in America, so focused on what's happening in America and in the political system. You know, we have a whole chapter that says, follow a king, not a politician. And it's all about, can we make sure that our identity as Christians is supreme? That needs to be the number one thing. And then maybe our whiteness or our blackness, and then maybe our, our politics and whatever, however the list goes for you. But number one has to be, I'm a Christian first. And then I'm a white guy and then I'm a Southerner and then I'm an American or whatever the, then I'm a Democrat, whatever the case is. Uh, so I kind of feel like our gospel oriented life needs to be a gospel oriented life. <laughs> the gospel needs to be the center and we, and everything else orbits around that rather than who we are as an individual, a male, you know, a female, a, a, you know, it's like those things are peripheral. What's, what's at the center is the gospel. Does that answer your question? I don't, that's kind of a thought. Yeah. yeah so really it's, it's um, unity in Christ above all things. Sounds like what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And how, how many people have elevated their style, their race, their whatever else, how many people have elevated that above their Christianity? Uh, that's always one of my favorite things to uh, consider when right. any cultural issues or political or like socioeconomic issues come up is we have different narratives that were that are being told on one side and on another side or from mm. all these different sub angles but what is something that uniquely the gospel brings to this that 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 invites us into um a kingdom of god solution that like brings heaven to earth and makes yeah. things as they should be yeah so I think you had a good point there where firstly when we're when we become Christians we are now just the bride of Christ. That's who we all are. Rather than we're a we're a more conservative church or we're a more liberal church or I have different beliefs than this person on the minor the, uh, theological issues. Mm -hmm. We have to consider ourselves first and foremost as a united family in in God. And I think a key thing that he did say was that that doesn't get rid of your other distinctives um doesn't need to i i've heard uh, i've heard tim keller say a similar thing where um your identity is christian first or in christ first and that doesn't need to get rid of your other identities but it also means that those in not being primary can be um, softened or rounded off so you don't have to necessarily hold on to all uh, pieces of that identity or everything that's come to be known as a part of that identity. Uh, so, so there is some really good stuff in there. Just the question of, of who we are in Christ begins to shape what it means to be a part of a gospel community. I feel like he leaned right into that, uh, which was, which was helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, I think he did a good job of explaining just how the gospel must have kind of a foundational 
approach to how we are tackling this? Like if the gospel isn't the ultimate motivator and the ultimate grounding for this, because the gospel is always going to struggle the most when it's going against cultural idols or values that the culture may have that will oppose that. And so the thing is, if we're not using the gospel as the the base ground level for what we're doing, it's going to be so easy to lose sight of that value because there's just different value systems that we're constantly interacting with and we can lose we can we can dilute the potency of that if we're not cautious yeah and it's good for us all to take a take a minute to and ask the question okay then what in my context does the gospel challenge about what i think Mm -hmm. about race or about any of the other issues that are prevalent in our day and if we can't think of anything, we're probably not thinking hard enough. Right. We're sure. probably not thinking honestly enough. And then the question goes to, well, what possibly could it uh, bring to bear on the things that I already believe? Because it most likely does say something unless you've purposefully drawn out your ideology or thought process based on the Bible and through a lot of prayer and humility already. You probably there's probably a lot that the Bible is going to challenge you on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. One of our one of our values at Mission is the gospel, and so we we when we try to talk about that, we've preached on the value specifically from time to time. We when new members join, we try to talk about it, and we try to say that one of the things we're trying to do as a church is shape all of our approach um, off of kind of a gospel paradigm, and so. I think something that I would um, just add in that's maybe part of our approach at mission, and I'm sure a lot of other churches, is that that's kind of an imperative of the gospel would be to say, so now you need to understand that this implication of the gospel is you're part of the kingdom of God. Mm. And that means um, you should view this differently, and you should. But the the other piece of the gospel is the way that the gospel can actually motivate you to engage and change and make that take the hard look at yourself and I think that because the gospel is a message of um, you have no, there's no righteousness that you carry um, from yourself before God that that brings you any closer, um, that, that makes you a better person or a right person or a valuable person, that your righteousness is entirely a gift from Christ. What that enables you to do is to take that hard look at yourself without fear you don't need to look and go like, oh, man, I, I hope I, I'm pretty good. I hope I'm really not, like, failing at all on this mm-hmm. issue of race. You can look with eyes wide open and really allow God to, to show you through his word, through the community of Christians who are there to encourage you, build you up, ask you ask you the questions. And if, and if sin is found, it's not like, oh, what's wrong? You know, oh, my gosh, unbelievable. It's not really surprising. Mm-hmm. But you have this great resource in the grace of God that says, I'm loved and accepted by God. The people around me understand that. That's why I'm here. And so I can admit a a major issue that I have Mm -hmm. and put it on the table and call it what it is. I could call it sin. Yep. And not be afraid. Yeah. Um, I mean, that reminds me of like... A couple years ago, Liam Neeson, the actor, got kind of caught under fire because he was sharing in an interview that he, when he was a younger guy, um, had a had a personal friend who was assaulted by uh, a black gentleman, I guess, yeah. when he was in Ireland or wherever he's from. 
And uh, he said that he was so upset. He just he carried a lot of like violent anger Mm -hmm. against black people as a result. And that over time, that's something that he grew out of. And it was so odd because there were a number of people who were there was like a camp that was celebrating his like openness. But then there was a camp that was like, no, 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 you keep that to yourself. Like that's something you should be ashamed of. Like you shouldn't expose something like that. And so keeping the gospel as our foundation, it's like the gospel actually invites you to confess but also to grow and acknowledge areas where maybe there is room for improvement. Because, I mean, that's the basis of the gospel is that we are mm-hmm. all greatly in need of significant right. and, improvement. And how do, those, how do those problems, like, how are those problems allowed to fester in the first place? It's by, it's by keeping them hidden right. and not, not talking about them. Right. And the, the gospel gives us, like, there, there is a big cultural narrative right now about, about really loving yourself and you can't love anyone else until you love yourself fully. Um, and there is a little seed of truth in there. There's a little seed, like right. you don't, you shouldn't be ashamed of yourself. And especially Christianity um, tells us that because we're made in the image of God to like denigrate that image is actually sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another side of it where the gospel also tells us we're very innately prone to sin. We're prone to do bad things. And because it points that out and holds us, holds our attention on it, and then provides us with the relief from it in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it simultaneously doesn't allow us to just keep bad things under the surface and hide Mm -hmm. them and let them fester, let them keep being there. And it also gives us the grace to release them and to work through them, to see them for what they are so we don't have to rationalize them away and also to offer us the acceptance and the love of God as we do walk through those things. Essentially, the gospel is good news. That is the flip side of bad news. And so you can't have the good news unless you understand what the bad news is. So the bad news is is that we're extremely sinful. So like in this area of race, I think I've said publicly to the church and elsewhere when I do a self-examination, if you were to do one to me, you would find um, issues of prejudice, uh, mm-hmm. of racial prejudice in me. Some of those I've inherited from my family. Uh, some of those I've developed because of uh, experiences I've had. Yeah. Um, some of them were were just, yeah, they somebody taught it to a friend, as, you know, something like that. Uh, there's ways that I've resisted that. There's ways I've given into that. And they are they are a part of me. And that's true of like so many other areas of my life. Yeah. So that's bad news. Without Um, the gospel, that really condemns you. That does, Mm -hmm. you know. And so in, I think in our current cultural moment, the goal of folks is to um, be people free of bad news, that there's no bad news in me. And so you either, I mean, the truth is you're going to be self-righteous if you try to do that or you're going to, or you're going to hide one of the two. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to just keep things under wraps. Mm -hmm. So when you have that, that thought um, that, that you go, oh man, that felt like a racist thought, you can't. You can't call it that. Hmm. You either have to say, well, I didn't act on it, so it's not a problem. Right. Um, or you have to say, oh, that yeah. was just part of my upbringing and I don't want to be that kind of person. Or it's not my whatever. fault. Yeah. Somebody mm-hmm. did it to me. You figure out why yeah. it's not actually on you. Right. And That's... Christianity, oh, sorry, I was going to say, Christianity mm-hmm. calls us to, like, no, actually, like, put it on the table and say, no, it's wrong. It's dark. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually evil. And that's the interesting thing about Christianity that I think is so, has so much universal value to it, yeah. is that. Um, left to our own devices, 
humanity doesn't really know what to do with its own shame. Yeah. And it, we can see that more and more we're constantly kind of in this cycle of trying to absolve ourselves. And oftentimes that comes in the form of justification where it's like, yeah. well, I was raised like this. So you can't expect any better or I'm not actually as bad as you're telling me that I am. So like there's this always constant shake of like yeah. trying to keep this shame or guilt off of me. But really what the response should be as Christians is like uh, almost like an eagerness, not that we're like super psyched about being sinful, right. but like a willingness to be able to say like, I, I can acknowledge that there is sin in me. And I think something that I'm grateful for in the context of these conversations about race is I feel invited to explore other areas of my heart too, right. because right. race is a huge social dynamic, but I've also been thinking like, man, where, where do I need to explore my own heart and repent for areas like misogyny or right. like where I might hold some uh, some derogatory or prejudices about different people like class and things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's so many areas of my life and how I view people that could be cloaked with discrimination. And I, I want to be able to dig into that. And those get to, and those get to be segues to further freedom mm-hmm. rather right. than more things that are wrong about me. Because there's for the rest of our lives, there are going to be more and more and more things that are wrong with us. And we're just going to keep finding them out and we're never going to get through all of them. Uh, But what we're saying as Christians is God is inviting us into the world as it should be. And that's what our sanctification, uh, that's what the process of sanctification does, not just for us and for the way it gives us freedom, but for the way it makes the whole earth and makes the, whole way, the way it makes our communities, the exponential impacts that that draws on. I, I think one of the hardest things that I see people struggling with right, right now with is the idea of inherited right. sin. Mm-hmm. Or like, and, and we talked about that a little bit, actually, that was one of the questions Andy asked. We can, we can go to that one next, but about how, how we, um, we do, we, we inherit the sins of our fathers, the place, the place that we're at in the world right now has the leftovers of their sins right. surrounding it. And they're what, it, you know, our grandparents or great-grandparents, they're dead. They're not going to do anything about it now. Right. They, but, like, we're here now. So we can either say, well, not my problem. I'm not going to do anything about it. Or we can take responsibility and say right. we want these things to be better because they happen from our lineage, basically. Yep. There's a whole sermon about that. Foundations, Mission Church, the fall. Look at that. <laughs> um, but the uh, the only other thing I was going to add to that. So uh, uh, the way it was put to me by a pastor years ago was that the beautiful thing about actually like growing in Christ and and what you're talking about, you're you begin to see more and more of your sin. That that's that's what the the culture around us is terrified to do. We want to we want to point it out in others with the hope to like eradicate it, but seeing it in ourselves, we don't know what to do, how to be redeemed, how to change, other than to just promise you're going to do better mm-hmm. and hope. And then if you mess up, you know, yeah. you either admit it or you hide it or whatever. But what God has done for us in Christ is provided this this personal loving sacrifice in our place for that. And so you actually end up glorifying God more the more sin you admit, confess, deal with, and face, because you're not gonna you're not gonna solve it yourself. You're going to see that it ends up being paid for by Jesus. So the way that this pastor had said it to me years ago, when you walk when you walk forward as a Christian, and you understand more and more of your sin you actually get a bigger and bigger cross. Um, the, the cross of Christ becomes more and more important, profound. And so the ideal thing is that on your deathbed, you've confessed 
and faced and acknowledged more sin um, than ever at the end of your life, and that the cross of Jesus Christ is is more profound and powerful to you than ever. And that's the good news, is yeah. that you're not left with just being a sinner, like, oh, you're racist. Like, you could say, no, I, I struggle. I've There's racism in me. There's prejudice in me. And then the fact that God loves me and has died for me and continues to walk with me and puts me in community and like shapes me and forms me and changes me is look at his love for me. Look at, yeah. look at how much he's done. Yeah. So, so maybe that's a good way to wrap up that question. What does the gospel say differently about, um, how does the gospel address race issues differently? It's aimed toward redemption right. mm-hmm. rather than mutual destruction. Right. So your motive for, working on the racist issues in your heart is to know more of redemption and grace mm-hmm. not to yeah be feel crummy by yourself yeah yeah well that's a good uh that's a good segue into this next question because it's a fun one yeah it's a, <laughs> well, i'll just hit play and let us go into it all right a chapter i don't remember the number of but you could you could remind us was one on white privilege mm. and Something that I noticed as I was going through the book was that this was the only chapter at which you two decided you needed to encourage people not to skip it. Uh, to and, and and I wanted to first of all have you just speak to why you felt the need to do that, but also I kind of understand because there are certain terms that in the last couple of years have become ones that people kind of put up a wall, and that's one of them. Right. Um, and there's there's others right um, that yeah that have become in the last two years, all of a sudden ones where people don't want to have the conversation anymore. So maybe you could speak to that briefly, but I wanted to ask as you've encountered people who have resistance towards some of these ideas that actually really do help you have the race conversation, how have you helped people who were resistant or afraid of those terms continue in the conversation. That's something we want to learn from. How, how does that not become the, the stopping point? Wow. That's a great question. I think, uh, it's chapter five, by the way, uh, it's called check your postures. Let's talk about white privilege. It makes me uncomfortable to say white privilege. I don't yeah. like it. Um, and I just don't think, it, you know, I don't think I'll ever, I'll ever be comfortable with it, but it's, it's real. And I think people sometimes don't like the word privilege especially people that have not, you know, sort of been raised in privilege. We think about privilege, we think, you know, wealth and, and whatever, you know. Um, but privilege just means advantage. We could say white advantage, uh, whatever you want to say. It's very obvious to me that I have been given certain advantages because of the color of my skin. It's that, you know, there's certain um, realities to that. And so don't skip the the chapter because it's tough to read. I think we like to avoid difficult subjects. That's the reason we say read it, please, and read it with an open heart. And probably the hardest thing for me is to talk about this with other white people who struggle to believe that it's this is a reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do this little exercise where you put your fingers up, you know, and then you put your finger down for every question. Uh, it's in the book. I, uh, yeah. inevitably, inevitably, when I do it, and I've done it with, you know, 10 hundred people and white people tend to have, you know, eight, nine, 10 fingers still up at the end of the exercise and black people tend to have all their fingers down. It's just a reality. And it's one of the best pictures of privilege that mm-hmm. that particular exercise. 
And I remember, I don't remember the exact questions, but they were, they were things such as, you know, have you been, have, have you been asked to leave somewhere or have you felt um, uncomfortable when engaging with um, someone in law enforcement? Like those kind of questions, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I have them right here. Like put, put a finger down if you've been called a racial slur, mm -hmm. uh, put, put a finger down if someone has stepped off an elevator to keep from riding yes. with you. Uh, put a finger down if you have, if you've been accused of, of not being able to afford something expensive, um, put a finger down if you've been denied service solely based on the color of your skin and, and, and on and on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when I did it, I put one finger down. Um, and, and, and when Wayne did it, we did it together on the video curriculum, you know, he was, all the fingers were down. So, and that's been this, the case now, I, I, you know, obviously in different parts of the country, we, we might see different things and we're, I'm in the South, but you know, Wayne's, Wayne, Wayne was raised in the Northeast. And so, um, so it's a, it's a very powerful illustration. And when you do it with a group of mixed group to look around the room, it's pretty telling. Yeah. How many, yeah. how many people do you think listening feel really uncomfortable right now? Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel uncomfortable and I don't believe that I don't have privilege, right. but it's, it's a really, really difficult topic for people um, especially those who are having a hard time with that term specifically, white privilege. Because, I mean, honestly, if you have white privilege, that's really, really not a good thing in our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that puts you on the bad guy lists. And nobody wants to be on the bad guy list. So we find ways to say, well, I'm, I wasn't really privileged. privileged. Like, like Andy, you could say, "Well, I grew up very poor. I was in right. I was in trailers all my life. I don't. Right. I didn't have much privilege. Right. I didn't have privilege." But it's kind of like he said, "It just means advantage." Yeah. It means because just just because of the color of my skin, I didn't have as many disadvantages. Basically, I think even a better way to put it is lack of disadvantage. Yeah, which could be perceived as advantage, but like if you look at the history of what it meant for many years to be African American, to be yeah. Native American, to be a number of like ethnic minorities, they just had so many things working against them. I, I, I definitely agree. I think that people will get kind of a thorn in their shoe when they think like, oh, well, if you're saying I have white privilege, that means that my um, poor relatives uh, didn't receive any white privilege. You know, I had to work my way through X, Y, and Z. And, and it, 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 it sounds like it's invalidating all the struggle that they've had. Right. And it's not meant to yeah, do that. Yeah, it gets treated like a zero-sum game. And it yeah. doesn't mean that if you have, uh, if you have privilege that you don't have struggle. Mm -hmm. It just means that this is a specific thing that doesn't make your life harder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've told stories before about when I moved to Chicago and you know seen another another guy about my age dressed the same as me stopped and frisked um, on the on the side of the road and the the officers didn't even look at me and and I've I've told that story and received a little pushback you know because I do I know exactly what had gone on with the guy that day I don't um, and so I guess I don't know that situation 100 percent but I I heard from because I lived in in South Chicago the neighborhood of South Chicago I heard the stories over and over and over that this was a common thing um, and a frustrating thing but another one comes to mind for me uh, and that's that I went to a private school and and that was here in Tucson and there was one uh, African-American kid who came into the school and 
And I don't remember the the sequence of events that leads up to this. I, I do remember exactly who who it was that gave him a hard time. Um, but but he he was just kind of bullied, um, and he was and at one point the N word came out. Mm. Um, and I remember as a kid, uh, like re- saying like that's enough, you know, and like kind of getting into it with this other kid, and um, and that. But I, I did it like one time, and so I look back on that time, and this kid, I mean, obviously he's a private school. He's got this is an African American dude. The family's got to have money. They, there's you'd think, you know, and all this stuff. But but his experience of coming to private school, I never ever. Um, there was never a day where the way that the, the very pigmentation of my skin um, got got the you know I had a racial slur hurled at me or I felt like I was an outsider because of it um, or I felt like I was connected to a different story than everybody else or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I just I wouldn't be a bit shocked if he didn't grow up to be quite successful and do a lot of amazing things, but still he he had that all to deal with mm-hmm. that shaped him right. That was something I didn't. I dealt with some other things, um, but but there's a whole community, right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole community, and in parts of the of the country where John Siebling's from, you know, it's a massive community exactly. that has that shared experience, and it's shaped them. Mm. Um, and so I think that's uh, yeah, it's a key thing to understand. Terms are hard because they they come and they change and they shape. And somebody writes a book, you they know, Robin D'Angelo of... writes a book with yeah. that name, and you start to go, white privilege means exactly what Robin D'Angelo just called mm. it, or whatever. Mm. And I, that that kind of stuff's tough, yeah, to deal with because I don't think we're trying to say accept Robin D'Angelo's assessment by no means. But and I and I know. think that's important because there is such a a fractured and like very polarized view on a lot of these terms. Like sometimes to use a term like white privilege almost sounds like we're co-signing yeah. a group of people who have taken this very subject and kind of become really inflammatory and kind of like antagonistic and you know like or I, coming from a different framework basically. Exa- yeah. exactly exactly yeah right. interestingly it may have been part of one of these questions or just part of a uh, different point in our interview with him but he mentioned that you know he is He's in Memphis. He's in the South. They're about 50% or something like that, um, African-American, his church. In Tucson, we haven't seen all of the historical issues at large like you would have in the South. Yep. Simply because we just don't have a very large African-American population. 5% here. 5%. -hmm. There's some unique stuff to that, too, being African-American and only 5%, but but it's different. And so, especially if you've grown up in a place that, isn't very racially diverse. You might not have experienced or seen these things yeah. or had to have different ideologies, but Brittany grew up in the South. My yeah. wife, she she can tell you a number of times she's oh, seen these yeah. things happen and mm. things she's heard relatives say and things. So part of it is the context that we grow up in to whether or not we're going to give claims, a lot of credence, yeah. personal personal experience with those things happening or not happening a lot of times colors people's um, willingness to accept whether it's a big issue or whether it's not really an issue or and especially yeah. if you're white you don't see it as much right and, and sometimes i wish i could translate to people my experience i'm i know others have it but of having been like immersed in south chicago for about mm-hmm. a year i i really wish i could you know, help other people have that experience so they could see it from that perspective. I realize I can't. Yeah. 
Um, but but I there are these moments. I, I remember I think one of the first times it happened for me was actually because of growing up. I think the Western United States is just a different flavor in general. I would say of uh, not that there aren't issues, but it's a different feel. But kind of only having lived in the Pacific Northwest when I was very young, and then Tucson all my memorable life. I went to South Africa and I remember the the first the guy whose home we were living in said said to me and we're a, ch- a church group and he just looked me dead in the face and and all of us he said don't feel like you need to talk to the black people. You don't. You don't need to. Hmm. Nobody expects that of you. And just I was just like oh, this what? Like uh, what? Yeah. That just you just that came out of your mouth and he went to a multi-ethnic church, you know. Hmm. But when I got out of my context and saw that somewhere else, and then when I moved to Chicago later and realizing, oh, this isn't just an out-of-my-country reality. This I'm seeing this here. Mm-hmm. So it's it's tough. It's um, contextually, anyway, I just wish I wish people could, could have immersion experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, John, okay, multi-ethnic family yourself. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I remember a conversation that you and I had um, – maybe about a year ago. And it actually wasn't about race. It was about yeah. finances. Yep. But we were talking about how a lot of times the way someone perceives money and finances is directly a result of their parents and their like uh, yeah. situation with finances. So if you're raised by someone, let's say you've got two people who are both living steadily middle class, but one person's parent has been in middle class life their whole lives. Yeah. And one person got there from living in pretty bad yeah. poverty. Like they're gen one. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the gen one individual is learning from someone who's telling them all these things to do, like to stay, to not be in poverty. Right. Like he's telling, he's telling them like how not to go into debt. Whereas, as maybe the other family, they're learning about how to invest, yeah. how to budget, things like that. And so I think there's an interesting experience because, like, I can say that for me, um, I think there's a number of things that have worked to my advantage to not be the victim of racism in, in my setting. One is just the fact that Tucson is a very different monster. Yeah. There's only like 5% black people here. Another is the fact that because I'm biracial, like just like my skin is lighter. Yeah. I look, I, I'm also in a heavily Hispanic um, right. culture. So like most of the time people don't even look at me and see a black person. Right. But the interesting thing that I inherited is that like my dad who was born in the 50s into a very high poverty area of Louisiana with a lot of um, racialization, experienced a lot of racism while he was serving for 20 plus years in the U.S. Air Force. Like he passed those types of experiences down to me. And that's now shaped how I view race in America because I've inherited so many experiences from my dad and inherited those as life lessons, too. And so like. I think one of the reasons why I don't really have much of an issue stomaching different conversations like this is because I believe that all of us as individuals are in some way inheriting the history that led us up until this point. And my personal history can't be separated from the experiences that my dad experienced because that affected how he raised me as his son, just as anyone else would have the same circumstances with their parents or or guardians or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, we, uh, one of the questions you you asked, John, I think, uh, which was a good one here, um, was when it comes to these kinds of issues, how can we as Christians not just 
react when something happens, but how can we be prepared for it? And how can we actually also address issues when they are not the front page of the mm. news. Mm. Um, I'm going to play that clip real quick and then we'll talk about it. Sure. John, uh, an issue that I think a lot of churches have is it seems like race and diversity conversations only really come up when there's a big national crisis that occurs. Right. You know, a lot of this started when George Floyd happened and years before that it happened under other circumstances as well. Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown. So like, how do we as leaders try to grow a, a culture and a rhythm to where we're not being crisis response leaders, but kind of keeping this thing alive year round? That's a great question. And again, I'm not trying to, you know, promote our podcast, but the reason <laughs> we started our leadership in black and white podcast is we talk about it every month. And our goal is to talk about it from a proactive standpoint, not a reactive standpoint, right? And what you're speaking to is the heart that every pastor has or church to address real issues. And so you do want to talk about it. My, my advice would be uh, you need to do a, a series on, on diversity once a year. Um, mm -hmm. And of course you can do it in February because it's black history month, but you can do it any time of the year and um, proactively talk about what does the Bible say about diversity? I mean, goodness, Genesis to revelation is diversity. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, uh, it was designed by the whole church was born in diversity that the Bible says every nation under heaven was represented in that moment on that day. So, you know, there's some, there's some rich stories and you can use the book, God and race. There's plenty of opportunities to, um, pull out stories and scripture and do a whole series, do a whole series on moving beyond black fist, white knuckles, God and race, whatever. That would be my advice to pastors. Maybe uh, if you're in a community where there's been some racial challenges, maybe you're telling the church a third Sunday of the month, we're going to be praying for, for racial reconciliation and we're going to do it the whole year so that it's not like, well, you know, we're just doing that based on something that's happening in the news. Uh, the whole idea is to be proactive and you, you know, proactive about the things that matter, you know, your values and the things that, that are important. I appreciate you asking that question because I think it's something we all need to do. Yeah, I mean, we proactivity. I mean, it's uh, that's an interesting, mm -hmm. you know, conversation. I definitely, when I look at our church, I think in many ways, um, George Floyd hit us like a truck, like yeah. that situation, and we weren't as ready for it as I wish we would have been. Mm -hmm. um, it's also sometimes hard to know, like with all the the issues in the world, how to how to be out front of them, you know. Yeah. And anyway, but yeah, what did uh what thoughts did that stir for you too? Yeah. You're thinking about it again. So, uh, I had the privilege of thinking up oh, privilege. Here we go. Ha. Uh, <laughs> I had the opportunity to think more about this stuff because actually my seminary class, uh, was led by two multi-ethnic pastors yeah. up in Phoenix. It's actually the dudes of, uh, Redemption Alhambra. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Aaron. and, uh, Aaron Daly. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, and they got to share about their journey and kind of like what it took for them to foster that kind of a community. And it seems like it was a really long uh, thing. But one thing that came up during that discussion that I thought is often overlooked in these types of conversations is that this is not something that churches can really do at a church level. Like it has to start within the home. It has to yeah. start within the families yep. and the individuals, you know, here, here at mission. And we've, you've probably heard about this if you've listened to our other podcasts, but we're, we're about outposts. So it's like, 
um, creating uh, spaces of listening and creating uh, avenues where people can bring those who are either jaded with the church or who are interested from the outside and bring them in. And as I'm driving home from Phoenix yesterday, I'm thinking like, is it possible to do both an outpost model and also try to really diversify our church body? And I thought the way that we do that is we have to we have to encourage the people who were encouraging to outpost yeah. into their community to have those diverse spaces that they're living in. Because if, if anyone listens to a, a lecture or a conversation about diversity and they think, I got to go find a black friend, you know, I got to go right. find a black person to befriend like that. Right. You missed the whole point. Like if you're like in, in whatever given space you're in, whether it's school or work or whatever, you're at you're you're you cannot find anyone outside of your culture or ethnicity that you have befriended, then maybe it's time to reflect and ask yourself why that's the case. And maybe there's room to explore. Maybe it's just circumstance. But like, I think that's where like the Mm -hmm. proactivity really starts. It's by encouraging like, like, like the diversity of the church is not going to start on Sunday. It's a Monday through Saturday activity. Um, And we also don't like, a lot of being prepared for issues as they happen gets taken care of by just preaching the gospel every week. Mm. Because if we are coming to the world with the posture that I'm not above anybody and I'm also not supposed to be better than anybody else in order to be acceptable to God or to culture, then it's not going to be a huge change of narrative when we hear about something that we need to address ourselves because we're already in that posture. We're, we've already, our, our brains and our hearts have already been prepped with the continual movement towards humility mm-hmm. and towards looking at ourselves and asking, like basically asking God to, to look within us and creating us a clean heart. Um, so we should be ready to talk about those things when they aren't on the front page of the news. Right. And we can, I mean, sometimes things are going to just hit us and blindside us and we didn't realize they were there. And that's part of the Christian walk too. And yeah. I think you do need to not act like the thing in the news isn't there. Um, yep. I, I, I look back on our journey and even though it just it didn't necessarily feel like we were ready, I do think that one of our practices is we typically, we're not doing it right this second, but we typically are walking through a book of the Bible or something. Yeah. And so if it's in there, we're going to teach it. And I've thought about that several times along the way. I don't have a count, but I think that that the idea of racial prejudice before George Floyd had come up in sermons probably 10, 10 12 times yeah. um, before it was big news. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that for those who are really dialed in to what we were doing as a church, it was there. Um, it was it was possible, right? Yeah. Um, but then the other the other piece with what you're saying, just it being a part of your daily life, um, I've, just like you said with, you know, I'm going to go out and make a black friend. I think for the church, it's just as weird to be like, we got to go find some some people of other races. Yeah, It's like the way that the church builds is that you – connect with, befriend, and find common common faith yeah. with people. And and so you need to do that diversely, mm-hmm. right? And hopefully not just because you're trying to prove something. Yeah. So an interesting example would be, I mean, honestly, yourself being mm-hmm. now a pastor at our church is the fruit of you and 
you know, several of your friends who were a very racially, racially diverse group of friends came to the church by invitation Mm -hmm. and you all were talking about ministry. I was excited to get to know you all more um, just because that's, I, I saw in you all this passion for serving Christ and sat with you and got to know you all. Right. You know, and of the three, you were, you're the one that kind of seemed to have the like, the calling, I would just say, I, I think it was recognized within your friendship. I I could see it. And look at you. Now we have a leader who is not a white guy, you yeah. know, but it wasn't, we didn't do that to try to prove a point right. to anybody, right. you know, and the, and we, and I think we have, we have other people coming up in our church and getting, you know, connecting our, into our church that there is a more diverse group, but it's happened through relationships. Mm-hmm. So if I were to kind of speak out to our church and say, let's foster this. I would say that. I would say let's foster this, but I would say foster it in those relationships. And then like, if it's a good fit, invite them into our church. We'd, sure. we'd, be, we'd be pumped and we don't want to, we don't want to close the door to that. Yeah. Cause the opposite of doing something organic and relational and authentic, which is what you just described, which right. I agree with hundred percent, it then becomes like almost manipulative. Yeah. And I can say like, as a person of color, it's not hard to notice when someone yeah, is like I'm really sure. interested in your opinion yeah. or in your presence somewhere based on like almost race alone where you're like kind of checking a box and you getting you see feel a little tokenized by it like it's a really awkward yeah. feeling because it's like well is is it that my opinion or yeah. that my voice is valuable or is it just that like I I now you know add a splash of right. color to this uh you know bowl of milk that we're playing with here <laughs> so you know it gets it gets tricky and I I think that there are I have seen in some spaces I won't say many but like uh, there is there becomes such a zeal to diversify that now like the people that you're trying to bring in are almost like just pawns to yeah. like accomplish this greater scheme and that and that's on and it's, honestly it's very unloving it's very unloving to do that yeah and I, I I've had an aversion to that so so it's tough because that like there has been a desire in me to see a very multi-ethnic church, mm-hmm. but also an aversion to like making that a like a stated goal or something. Right. You know, it's an interesting dynamic. Anyway, I'm I'm grateful for where we are these days, and I think the reason for it has been because people have been inviting in mm-hmm. friends and family, and that's where right that's where it comes. Well, from. maybe maybe the difference is uh, that when we're when we're trying to do these things out of a gospel-centered purpose, they end up being oriented and rooted in love rather than a goal, yeah. rather than an accomplishment. And people feel the difference in that. We know when people want something from us, and we also know when people are marked by love, and mm-hmm. that's their motivation. I think that's one of the huge things that, I mean, we've seen, we've seen in our church in the last couple of years a lot of diverse growth and some in some in race, a lot in ideologies, right. and we so uh, we, we currently have a yeah. handful of atheists just coming to our church every week, or yeah. people right. that people with very different beliefs, people that aren't sure what they think, and also people who um, who are like, yeah, I think I'm I think I'm uh, open to checking out religion, but I'm not sure where I'm at with it yet, and not because we have chosen to be a very seeker sensitive type of church where we don't hit hard and we don't say what the gospel really says and we don't hold ourselves accountable and each other accountable, but because they can, I think 
because they could see the signature of of love and and mm-hmm. I do truly believe about our church that we're we're driven honestly to love the community that God has put us in mm-hmm. yeah. because of the love that we've received by him and because of trans of the transformational power that it has in our own lives um, not in order that we would all have great paying jobs <clears throat> mm-hmm. not that we would all have <laughs> a great status or something in the community yeah, and a huge mm-hmm. building and a huge church attendance or something, but because we, we've been changed and we want that to be able to pass yeah. on. And I want to, I just want to, for those from our church listening, just say, I, and I don't think Mike means to say we, the staff have done that. I think it's our, it's the, it's you, it's yeah. the, it's mm-hmm. mission. It's the church that loves. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's been, so anyway, mm-hmm. you know, with way all, to go. With like, all the great, problems that we you. do have as being just a weird out-of-pocket church, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's something special there. I'm, I'm glad we have that going on. That being said, there's always more work to be done. There's, oh, always, oh, yeah. always, a, oh, yeah. there's always a lot of hard things to do. So um, I'll throw it to your last question here, Andy. Why it's worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We only have a couple more minutes with you. Could you take one of those minutes to tell us just why... It's worth the work to uh, to have a diverse church. Yeah, Lee, what a great question. Um, it is worth the work, but it's hard work. And like any great work, there's misunderstanding. And there's people that say, yeah, but I'd rather be in a white church. I'd rather be in a black church because I, it's me. It's, it's in my family. But, you know, iron sharpens iron, right? I feel like diversity is in our DNA as Christians. And so when we're in a, when we're in a homogeneous context, I think we're missing out Mm -hmm. on a, on a whole side of what Christ wants us to experience in community. It is hard work, but it is worth it. Okay. Look, if you're in Boise, Idaho, and you, you know, 93% of the city is white, right? That's what your church should look like. I, you know, guys that are struggling with diversity, they're like, we want to be more diverse, but they're in a predominantly white environment. We just want to look like our community because that gives us the greatest chance to interact and engage with our community. Otherwise, as a church, we become a subculture. Obviously, I'm in Memphis and there are churches that are all white. Okay. Yeah. I think those churches have a harder time reaching the community and having a voice into the community because they mm-hmm. tend to be a subculture of the community. So, Again, back to the prophetic voice and back to the, the ability to be down in the, the context of your community. I think it requires you looking like your community. It's worth the work, hard work, but worth it. And that was awesome. probably longer than a minute. Sorry. <laughs> well, you nailed it. We're right at that time. And uh, it's not that we want to leave. It's we know you have other interviews to do. So, right. John, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your work on the book. Thank you for your leadership that that led to this book. Um, and thank you to Wayne as well. So we enjoyed having you on and, uh, appreciate you. Well, thank you guys so much. Hey, keep up the good work and keep, uh, talking about the, the, the real issues and more information, uh, at God and about the book and the curriculum. Yeah. Thanks again to John Seeling. Interestingly, I think I would probably say about his church and our church. Um, I think we, I think, as we were talking with them, we realized like we actually have very different churches yeah. with their very, very different beliefs, even mm-hmm. about things in the Bible, and ways di- we different, do things. different theological streams and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah. that's a, everything we talked about during this interview and all the stuff we got to go back over during this conversation really kind of shows you that unification through Christ 
really brings us to the same places and draws us toward the way creation was meant to be, even when we have a lot that's not in common. Yeah. There's so many different things between our two churches and probably a lot of things, probably even things that we would say, we disagree with that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sure. With what you guys believe about X, Y, or Z Mm. as it pertains to the Bible. But um, like you said, it's worth doing the hard work. And I, and I love the, the community uh, emphasis there too. Cause I, I really think that like, uh, obviously I think there's a lot of positives of we want to be diverse because we believe that the kingdom of God is diverse and that's just an obvious thing. And we also believe that a lot of history has created these divides and we recognize the sin in that history and we want to restore that. But also like, yeah, we don't want people from our community and from our neighborhood to walk into our church and feel like they are an outlier or feel like, you know, all of the the uh, unsurfaced tension of being a, of being underrepresented or, or not spoken for. And, you know, like we want to be able to minister to that because there are places like there are churches that are like focused on like specific ethnicities. Like we've been interacting with right. a church that's primarily Vietnamese, but right. For them, they are a beacon of the Vietnamese community in Tucson. Like that right. is their mission field. But our mission field is not, you know, a specific racial or ethnic group. Like our mission field is the people who live by us. Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are senses of call to different um, subsets of the Christian community. I think that body of Christ thing isn't just individuals. I think there are there are churches, cities, different. There's different cultures, different outworkings of these things. And I think we all we all need each other. And that's another one of the values of diversity. That's why yeah. you should would want to value a diverse community, even a, ver- a diverse um, connectivity between churches, is that you're going to you're going to see parts of what the kingdom is. You're going to see part you're, you're going to see sections of the word of God differently through other people's eyes and maybe even more accurately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've definitely seen that before that certain cultures uh you know, read a scripture and see in it probably the depth that was meant to be there that I missed Mm -hmm. and things like that. So there's just some, some real uh, value to that. And then I think just tying it back to the gospel again, if, if we are people who aren't afraid to look at our sin, because we, we know that we've been redeemed and that God is restoring us and working on us, a diverse community is going to do a better job of kind of like bringing out the, the beautiful things, but also the the broken things. Yeah, and I think that's part of why it's hard to do, mm-hmm. um, because that that these things come up, and and you might get, uh, a, there might be a conversation about how somebody feels uncomfortable or mistreated or whatever, but in those kind of spaces, those uncomfortable spaces, uh, we actually can can see sinfulness that actually just points us to the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the books we read. Uh, before doing this interview, as a, a group of people at our church was divided by faith, and one of the big issues that they saw why multi-ethnic churches didn't technically work, because they're hard to do. Yeah. They 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 aren't comfortable. Mm-hmm. They aren't a place where you go and just feel like you've had a really uh, smooth experience. Sure. They're, you have to you have to do somebody else's style of thing, mm-hmm. and you have to have hard conversations. And I think the gospel enables us to value that. Right. Well, and, and to reiterate this too. Another reason why it's worth it is is not just because it makes things better, but because it also invites us into further freedom from the stuff that's holding us back intellectually or, or that's, that's a wall between us and other people. 
Because the reasons that it is hard to have a church that's multi-ethnic are not good reasons. Right. And they're not reasons that – they're reasons that that chain us down, yeah. actually, in our entire life. And so when we get to take them on um, while they're uncomfortable to do, it actually invites us all personally into greater freedom. And it lets us enjoy the entirety of God's creation in his right. image bearers and not just the ones that we happen to be most like. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of long suffering and why it's worth it to wait. Uh oh. Uh, What's in the duck? <laughs> so we it's it's been a full about hour of podcast and uh, can we get one more hint? One more hint. Yeah. Um, what did I say? You I said, said it, it has, has no feathers. feathers. It, it has feathers, but it cannot fly. Yeah. I oh, have. No. I have it. You. You have it. I have it. And so do I. Oh. And to get it, you must. first you must fry. A chicken nugget. It's oh. a chicken nugget. It's a tiny little chicken nugget. Huh. <laughs> and mm. uh, you can have this nugget. Yeah. It's already very cold. Just email Did you go to Chick-fil-A what's today? in yeah. the duck <laughs> at missionchurchtucson.com to yeah. claim your free chicken nugget. Oh, wow. you'll, and you'll get a response from your mail, email provider that that doesn't exist. <laughs> P.O. Yeah, Box right. 00850. <laughs> well, thanks for hanging out with us for an uncomfortable conversation. I hope you won that chicken nugget. Oh, I do too. Yeah, I, I really do. All right, see you guys. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Odd Church Podcast. If you've never been to Mission Church, but you'd like to visit, we're a small church in the heart of Tucson. We meet at 4.30 every Sunday evening. You can find our location and lots more on Instagram at mission underscore Tucson or at missionchurchtucson.com which is also where you can donate if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to help support our ministry as an outpost church. If you want more content like this, subscribe so you'll be notified when we come out with new episodes. And if you're on YouTube, like the video and drop a comment to let us know your thoughts on today's content or offer us recommendations for future episodes. If you want to find us on YouTube, search Mission Church Tucson and look for the red and blue M. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.